everyone. This is Catherine Adams. And Elizabeth Wallace. And you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 377. And tonight, we're recapping Welcome to Night Vale number 233, Citizen Spotlight, The Vampire of Lombardi Street, which I think, I guess it was the twist of that title actually kind of came in close to the end. They sort of led us down a garden path for most of the episode in order to subvert our expectations a little bit. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure how to recap this one because I think a lot of it, the story itself is really, really simple. And a lot of it, of the appeal just comes from hearing it, from hearing how Cecil is telling the story of the vampire and the vampire's servant. Yes. So we talk about uh, Luca Albescu, who lives in an old Victorian mansion. Uh, Nobody knows when he came here, but they just, there's a whole lot of talk about this guy and he's old, but he still like goes to see movies and plays. He likes to go to a club. He'll get his two little drinks through the evening. But for the most part, He's just, he just enjoys being around people. And, you know, that's, that's really the most we know about him is he's just a really old guy who's just kind of living his life, riding his bike, and that's about it. And he, they try to hint at some things that end up being not terribly relevant, like the fact that he doesn't go to church. But it's mm-hmm. not like he doesn't like church. I mean, he... Cecil says he wishes the congregation at the church next to him well the same way that we wish people well in Italy or other places where we don't actually know people. And, you know, he wasn't exactly sad when the church moved away or when a furniture company moved in its place and then that moved away. And it was just, how did he put it? His attitude apparently was somewhere between indifference and good for them, which I like how they explained that. Yeah, yeah. So he became aware after a while that the kids in the neighborhood were scared of him, and he tried to tell one child that he wasn't a monster, he was just old and everything. He was really gentle about it, but the kids started to cry, and Luca was worried that he had scared the kid, but Cecil says that the kid wasn't scared. It was just, I don't know, it it was too big to understand. And he knows this because Cecil was the kid that he was talking to. Yeah, it was the child was scared of the unknown because learning is scary. We also learn a little bit more about that Luca has, he has a lot of very fashionable clothes that he doesn't wear anymore because they're not fashionable. Like he loves cloaks, but he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. So he just wears a really oversized overcoat because he's gotten smaller over the years, the way we all do. You know, we all grow and grow and grow until we stop growing and then we start shrinking and, you know, talking about in firmities and everything and how it's just it's something that happens when we get old which we hope happens because the alternative is and i love how they phrase this to truncate existence yeah (laughs) so you know he had told the child that he wasn't a monster and i like how cecil says it's too simplistic to say that he's not a monster but Henri, who is his friend who he met years ago, was literally a monster. And then we get into the real story, I think. That they met in Brussels and they had this instant connection and they would just meet and talk all the time until Luca finally figured out that Henri is a vampire. And Henri acknowledged this and then kissed Luca's hand and then they made an arrangement. And it was that Luca 
lived with Henri and did everything that his master needed. And his master needed a lot. And one of the things he needed was for Luca to bring people to him. Yeah. I like how they always described Henri in the same way. He would say Henri with his fat wallet and thin temper, or Henri with his fake gold and sincere apologies. And... Yes, in case you're wondering, yeah, yes, Henri was definitely a vampire. This wasn't kind of a metaphor or anything. He really was a vampire. But it did seem to be a metaphor for an abusive relationship because Luca would do things for him and take people to him and clean for him, which sounded really bad, but always sort of over the years just managed to talk himself out of the idea of leaving. Yeah, and it wasn't that he was happy per se. I mean, it sounded like when he would bring people to him, and of course, this was happening in Brussels, but then to get away from people actually noticing him, they moved to another city and then another one after that, and eventually to Night Vale. And living in that mansion, Luca would bring people to the mansion, and Luca would just wine and dine these people, and they would listen to music, and they would like have charming conversation, and sometimes... Andre would help, but as time went on, he would just show up later and later to the dinner party to the point where he finally would only show right when the conversation had gotten good. And then, of course, Andre would kill them. I mean, that's that's actually stated right out. There's no metaphor going on with that. No, no, no. But they liked their life in Night Vale. They liked where they lived. They liked being able to see stars all over the place. They liked the night air, and it was, you know, this cool, cloudless evenings. It was the perfect weather. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I couldn't quite figure out the very beginning of the weather. I thought for a second it almost sounded like the horns that you would get in a Mexican sort of song, like a, a Mexican trio, but then it started sounding a little bit more like something out of New Orleans, a little bit jazzier, and then it morphed more into a folk song. And I need to listen to it again because the person singing from the point of view of someone who's talking to somebody else and kind of envying their life, I think. And it started getting a little bit more desperate as the song went on. Yeah, that's exactly what I've written down. I have, it's a, the name of the song is Exit Stage Left. It's by Bears with Eagle Arms. And I have written down old time ballady, progressively weirder. <laughs> strange. <laughs> And so back to our story, uh, they lived, Luca and Henri lived in Night Vale um, in, in their, at the time, brand new Victorian mansion that that was a long time ago. Um, Luca aged, but Henri never did. And Luca would continue to bring people for Henri. Um, and it was sort of difficult to let go of this partnership is one of the things they said. And, you know, he didn't I don't think he liked it very much, but he talked himself out of the idea of like, well, what am I going to do if I leave? You know, am I going to get a job? Am I going to get married? Am I have kids? I mean, it was just the fear of the unknown kept him in this situation, even though he wasn't happy. Yeah. And Cecil addresses that directly, like from the outside looking in, it's easy for people to say, get out of there. But relationships are complicated. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole idea about being on your own, I think when you've been in a relationship so long, you start justifying things. And Cecil repeated this twice in the episode that rationalization is one of humanity's most clever inventions. Yeah, yeah. And he 
he did even comment specifically. He said over time it was almost like Luca was the vampire, even though he wasn't. And I'm like, ha, that was sort of interesting. <laughs> thing we thought Luca was the vampire in the beginning. We weren't. But the thing was, is that at one point he brought a young woman home with him, though she, you know, young, she was in her 40s. He was at least five years older than her or 20 years older than her. It's kind of hard to tell. But they liked each other. They just sat around talking and had wine and cheese, and she thought it was funny, and he was just really enjoying her company, and she only felt a sting and then ecstasy and then nothing. And you're like, oh, man. Yeah. I was hoping she was going to escape. Yeah, and that was that was pretty much the breaking point for Luca, that he, you know, lit a handkerchief on fire and chased Henri back to his lair and then sharpened a, I think, a banister into a point and went back down into the lair and someone may have heard, like, a high-pitched whine in the distance or something. But, um, and that was it. And now... Luca is alone, and he finally is starting to feel free. And it's definitely a metaphor for anybody who thinks it's like, oh, it's that fallacy of sunk cost thing. You know, I've been in this relationship so long, I can't leave now. It's just like, I mean, he was really old when he left Henri, and he's getting older, but now he's happy. I mean, it's never too late to actually be happy to do something different, I guess is what they were saying. But yeah, it was really... It was a very sweet story. They said that Luca Albescu is the only one who can keep himself human. And I'm like, oh, that's very nice. So, yeah, a bit of a bit of a metaphor, but not the one I was thinking it was going to be. No, not at all. Yeah, no, it was nice. It was. But yeah, very straightforward. It was like almost a half an hour episode, slightly on the longer side for them. And a very simple story in a way, I guess. Um, but really nicely told. Really. Yeah. So the only other thing going on is that we watched episode three of uh, season two of Good Omens. It's so cute. And also David Tennant got to do a really thick Scottish accent at one point, which is always very fun because that's his natural accent. And it was just like episode two, the bulk of the story takes place in the past. And I just, mm-hmm. I love that. But in this case, it was Aziraphale and Crowley meet up with a resurrectionist. Um, yeah. Actually, they meet him. The Well, he says he's not a doctor, so he's like a surgeon, but who needs bodies. But they meet him through this street waif, um, Elspeth, I think, who mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. digging up bodies. And Aziraphale wants to save Elspeth from doing bad things. And just like last episode, this is a really a sign of, I don't know, all the bad ways you have at looking at good and evil. Like in right. this case, Aziraphale really wants to lean into this idea of how it's actually better for humans if they're poor, because that means they have so much more opportunity to do good. And you follow this whole story around, and the solution to the idea of Elspeth doing bad and wanting to her her to do good is to make it easier for her to live, period. Like, give yes. her money, give her help, do something, which, you know, yeah. Aziraphale just doesn't, he doesn't jump to that idea, but he does have empathy. So that's what makes the story fun rather than irritating, like if, say, Gabriel had been the person who was trying to make her do good. Exactly. And I read a really good recap of this episode over on Vulture, if you want to read a recap there, and they pointed out that the probably, it's not unfortunately, but I mean, it is a trope because Elspeth is trying to create a better life for her and her good friend, Wee Morag. 
this woman who probably wasn't long for this world anyway because she had that cough of death thing going on. But um, yeah, because they're when Aziraphale realizes that not only would it be okay for Elspeth to provide bodies, it was actually probably a really good thing because this doctor is using the bodies to teach people how to do medicine better. And it's like looking at the the end result. So Aziraphale agrees to go with them to go find another body, I suppose. And in the process of it, they set off a trap that rich people put on their graves to keep people from stealing their bodies. And it kills Weemorag. And this is an example of the trope, bury your gaze, because they never explicitly said that Elspeth Elspeth and Morag were in a relationship, but now it doesn't matter because she did. Yeah, and they drag poor wee Morag before she dies into this tomb area, and there's a very touching farewell, and then she's gone, and you see Elspeth is just kind of like staring forward, and I'm expecting her to go absolutely ballistic at Aziraphale because she had a body that she was going to sell for money, and that had been fine, but Aziraphale like turned it into soup, so he, she couldn't sell it. So right. if, if they had actually been able to go through with the plan the first time, it would have been fine. But because they went to a different body, then this happened. So she's just sitting there, and all of a sudden she looks up and said, could you bring my trolley? And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, she takes Wee Morag's body to the resurrectionist instead and gets money for it. And I just yeah. thought, that's cold. But... It turns out she needed to get some wine to make a final toast and to steal some laudanum for the doctor because she was going to take herself out. And that yep. was when Crowley, bless him, he figures <laughs> out the way to stop her from drinking the laudanum is that he drinks it himself. And he's just like, <laughs> constitution of an ox. And he gets so drunk. And I have in my notes here that cataclysmically drunk Crowley is the best Crowley. But then so fun. A, a few moments later, something happens and he accidentally shrinks himself down to like six inches high and he's still ranting. And my notes say, no, I take it back. Cataclysmically drunk, tiny Crowley is the best Crowley. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's this really high-pitched little voice as he's doing it. But he realizes what happens. He's like, oh, and he decides to change himself back and he becomes huge. And it's just like stomping around giant Crowley. It's just endlessly fun. It's endlessly fun. But he's like, he's trying to terrorize Elspeth into not killing herself because she'll be damned for eternity. And then he bullies Aziraphale into giving her money and yes. just and makes her promise that she won't try to kill herself. And she's like, yeah, I promise. Bye. So and that's that's where we leave her story. And yep. there were so many lovely little touches when they're talking to the resurrectionist sitting in front of the fire having whiskey, and he's explaining why he needs these bodies. And he has Aziraphale or Crowley pick up a jar that has something preserved in formaldehyde, and they, of mm -hmm. course, don't know what it is, even though they're pretending to be doctors. But he was like, yeah, if you don't know what this is, then how can I explain to my students what this is? This was a tumor that I took out of a seven-year-old boy, and Aziraphale is just devastated because he was like oh did he and the doctor shakes his head and you're just the doctor's continuing to talk and Aziraphale is just sitting there and he's hugging the jar of formaldehyde with the tumor in it because he's so bereft at the idea that somebody suffered and died and that's what oh. makes him go gung-ho with the idea that no we can help Elspeth get bodies because then we'll make humanity better isn't it funny how easily Aziraphale could have turned out like Gabriel yeah know? but because Aziraphale has been hanging out with Crowley he's learning so much about people stuff that he just absolutely never would have picked up on his own and he's learning empathy and that's another reason why I'm wondering if this whole thing with Aziraphale and 
Jim, because at the very beginning of the episode, Jim sought out Aziraphale because something in Jim's head told him that this is the person that would make him safe and how he feels best around. And I really think that Gabriel realized how little he knew and decided to do something to himself so that he could learn the same way that Aziraphale did. I don't know. This is just a guess. I kind of think Gabriel's running from something because we go through with the stuff happening in the present day. Okay. The angel Muriel has been sent to spy on Aziraphale, but she's just hilariously bad at being human. Like she comes to the bookstore dressed up as a police officer, but it's like a, like like a vintage police officer all in white. And she says, I am a human police officer. And Zerofell's like, (laughs) right. And he's just, he's going along with it. He's not tipping his hand and invites her in and gives her tea. And he's like, you would drink the tea. She's like, oh, maybe I'll just look at it for a little while. And Crowley comes in and says, well, this is a human police officer who's come over to have a look at a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. So anyway, um, yeah, Aziraphale says, tells Crowley that he's got to take his car to go to Edinburgh to look at this pub that has a jukebox that turned everything into that one particular song. And the name of the pub ends up being the resurrectionist. So Mm. there's some connection there. And it's very close to a statue in the cemetery that had been made to look like Gabriel. And it does kind of look like John Hamm, I think. They did that on purpose. Yeah, yeah. And also, he talks to the bar owner and asks him, you know, hey, do you remember a specific person? And the bar owner's like, there's no way I'm going to remember every single... And Aziraphale shows a picture that he's drawn of Gabriel, and he's like, oh, yeah, I remember him, but he wasn't here alone. I think he was with the Masons, so that's our next piece of the puzzle there, that the Masons may be involved. Yeah, and um, the last thing I think we see in the episode is Crowley talking with Jim, and Jim does that thing where he, like, goes a little zombified for a second and starts talking about something that he can't explain. And he says a line from the song, every day it's getting closer. So I think Uh, there's going to be another apocalypse that's supposed to be visited on humanity. But this time, Gabriel doesn't want it to happen. And that's why he's run away to a human form. Yeah. And one of the demons who's been kind of hounding Crowley comes to Crowley to tell him that hell knows that Aziraphale is hiding Gabriel and hell is going to come after Aziraphale. And the recap I read pointed out that it's interesting how when heaven thought that Aziraphale had done something bad, they were going after Aziraphale. But hell thinks that Crowley has done something bad, so they're going to go after Aziraphale because they know that Crowley likes him. Yep, and Crowley even tries to shout at Gabriel to tell him, if anything happens to Aziraphale, I'll... And Jim was like, Yes. Like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when they were in the past and Crowley had gone back to regular size and was trying to explain that everything he had done to help Elspeth was just because of laudanum poisoning. And Aziraphale is kind of being a little smug because, you know, Crowley did something to help someone. And Aziraphale is like, well, it's probably going to get you in trouble downstairs. And Crowley gets sucked down into the ground. And we don't find out what happened to him. Aziraphale just says that that was the last time he saw Crowley for a while. For a while. And that was Victorian time so I don't know how much longer because we do know that they like uh, during World War II I think that yes. was when they had like a meetup in a, a church so yes. we know it wasn't up until the present day that Crowley was dragged down into hell but it might have mm. been for a bit of a while. 
Yeah, so more to find out about that. But yeah, it was really nice. And of course, the song at the very end was kind of, um, that was more of a Scottish song, correct? Oh, yeah, it was definitely bagpipes. Oh, it was full yeah. on bagpipes, I think. Oh, I couldn't remember. <laughs> but yeah, and it does the thing where it changes partway through. So it's all very clever. Now, I read something, I believe the Vulture recap mentioned. I think the intro might actually be changing as time goes by. I haven't looked at it. So mm, I mean, okay. they, they just mentioned that. And so it's not something that I had noticed because there is so much that goes on in the intro animation. But yeah, there may be little hints and things that are happening in there. So I'll have to go take a Okay, because when I watched the intro for the second episode, I couldn't tell if they had added something that I recognized, like, you know, more uh, the the white-dressed angels marching along with them for a little while, or if I was just noticing them because I remembered them from the previous episode. So I'll have to pay a little bit more attention. Me too, yes. So that was it for Good Omens. The only thing I wanted to mention was that I watched another episode of Black Mirror, and it was called Maisie Day. And it is it's nothing that's on a par with some of our favorite episodes, like White Christmas or White Bear, San Junipero, USS Callister. It's nothing on a par with that. But I did like it better than the other episodes so far. I think because... In the end, it did actually manage to kind of take it in a direction that I didn't immediately predict. Like, you know, five minutes before something happens, I'm like, oh, I think I know what they're doing here. But I went through the whole episode not knowing what they were going to do with this story that they had laid out. So I was like, okay, good for them. That's nice. And it was, you know, a well-filmed, well-shot, well-acted episode. And so, yeah, uh, as at this point, out of the four that I've seen so far, it's the one that I've enjoyed the most. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I might have to give that a try. I watched episode five of the latest season of The Mandalorian, and uh, I am still enjoying this. Um, little things like when you have a non-human character, they're doing a really good job of animating the character's face and their mouth when they're talking. I don't, I can't really explain it, but it's just like, oh, you guys did a really good job on that. That's excellent. Nice. So um, this one was uh, The Mandalorians having to rescue a planet from pirates, so it was just fun, fun, fun. You had someone from the New Republic um, gets a distress call, but he can't get the bureaucracy on Coruscant to pitch in because this planet hasn't actually signed up to become a member of the New Republic. And ah. so he has to contact the Mandalorians, and they want to know how he found them. And he said, someone in your cohort was someone that I fought with during the war. And... Suddenly, this little tiny red droid comes in. Bleep, bleep, bleep. He's like, "Thanks, R five. So I'm like, "Oh, I like that." Then Aww. he treats the droid like a like a comrade in arms sort of thing. So that was cute. That's awesome. That's adorable. But yeah, the rest of it was just big, big battle with pirates. It was fun. Nice. Yeah, I don't need any more than that to be honest. Yeah. Know? And we got to see the armor in battle again. And I still, every now and then, I will go back and watch that scene from the last episode of season one where the armor just goes to town on a pack of stormtroopers using only, like, herb forge weapons. So that was just so cool. So badass. But I guess that's going to wrap us up for the week, so make sure to check out PixeladyGeek.com for all the book reviews, the movie reviews, the comic book reviews, the photo galleries. You know, no conventions or anything coming up right now, but I did just get the notice that designer con tickets have gone on sale. Yay! So let's see if I can uh, get us some press passes. That's in November, so that's coming up in a ways. We'll have, a, we'll have Halloween before then, and oh my goodness, we'll be right in the middle of Dragonfall Drawing Challenge. Wee! Two more months. I'll, I'll tell you what, I've already picked a challenge 
It's like oh, good. from way back, I think in either 2014 or 2012, and I was not able to find a link to the website of the people who created it because I think it's now defunct. But um, it's just, it's delightful. All the, the oh, quirky good. little prompts. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is a winner. I don't need to look anymore. So yeah, I'm good. looking forward to that. Good. And we will link to that on our Instagram at Binary System Pod. And of course, Catherine is Fan Dragon Adams, and I am Elizabeth, spelled really weird, L L Y Z A B E T H. But yeah, please join in if you feel like it. We always have a lot of fun with that. Anyway, all that and more, pixelatedgeek.com. So, still no Laura Olympus. I'll nope. put a countdown in the episode description because I think we're going to make that a thing. Uh, yeah, um, I, there's plenty of book reviews uh, out because I'm reading the Hugo nominated stuff. At least five entries in the fiction categories are not available to English language speakers. They're only available uh-huh. in Chinese. And I am not sure. I mean, I know the actual award ceremony is going to be in China, but it just seems odd. It's like, wouldn't you want to get some attention in the English language anyway? I mean, I know that that possibly means you'll have more voters that are Chinese language speaking that might tip it towards something like that. But still, it's weird. And I, I kind of want to yeah. read the stories. Yeah, I would like to do that as well. That'd be nice. And for me, I mean, Magic Order, it seems to have wrapped up for the most part. And Saga still hasn't come out. And Brian K. Vaughn had put up something on one of his Instagram posts about, I'm really sorry about the delay. I hope to have an update soon. And I'm like, oh, I oh, hope dear. he's doing okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a a delay, but he might have an update, not the actual release date yet. So I'm hoping there's not going to be a gigantic delay. No, we've already had a couple months at this point. So anyway, I am sure we'll find something to talk about. Plus, you know, another episode of Good Omens. So one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to y'all later. Because at the very beginning, the very first episode, Jim sought out Crowley because the because at the very beginning of the episode, Jim sought out Aziraphale because man, I had something that I was gonna mention.